0: Greetings and salutations, humble listeners. This is Isaac with a brief programming note. Um, Somehow, by some miracle, by some miraculous happenstance, you've come across the first episode of the podcast. Now, if you asked me why I started this podcast, really, ultimately, it comes down to one thing. Uh, After having been doing a hockey-themed podcast for about a year now and having a ton of fun doing that, I uh, really just wanted to be able to open up the conversations and have conversations with a wider array of people on a much wider array of topics, really, ultimately, anything under the sun. So I decided to start this podcast. Um, hopefully, you'll enjoy it and you'll follow us closely. On our first episode today, I was able to speak with Mr. David Griscom, whose work I've been following for a long time and who's a very insightful commentator on a lot of political matters. So what we're going to do is we'll transition into about 30 seconds of some music from one of my favorites, Koshi Maharu. This first track is called Stetson 7 and 3 Eighths, And the outro track will be Penultimate Love, I believe is the name of this song, although it's up for debate. And then after that, we'll uh, be going right into the convo with Dave Griscom. So welcome, welcome, everybody, and hope you enjoy the show.
1: So,
0: it be a little, yeah. yeah, it's it's a piece of shit. Like I'm, on Handkerchief Dynasty, I'm constantly joking and calling it like Skynet. It's, <laughs> always, it's always fucking with us. Yeah, <laughs> trying to trying to bring us down. Um, cool. All right, everybody, welcome. Uh, shockingly, this is uh, the first episode of Night Rule. With Isaac Murdoch, thank you for joining us. I'm joined today by uh, someone whose work has been falling for a long time. Uh, he's a very insightful uh, writer and producer based out of Brooklyn, uh, Mr. David Griscom.
1: David, how are you doing? I'm good, man. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward yeah.
0: to it. Uh, it's a total pleasure. Uh, listeners would probably best know you from from your work on uh, The Michael Brooks Show over the last few years, which has been superlative. Uh, you just announced yesterday that you and Matt Leck are starting a new podcast uh, called Left Reckoning, I believe. yes um when when can people expect to see that coming
1: out oh um, i mean so we're going to be producing all throughout you know the rest of november and december plenty of live streams on our youtube channel and twitch channel so there'll be lots of content um but we're going to start doing actual proper you know structured 2 hour live shows uh on thursday nights at 7 eastern starting probably in january or at the earliest late december but in the meantime, we're gonna be doing a lot on the Twitch channel. I do, you know, Griscom live streams, um, which I'll be doing again on the YouTube channel. So there'll definitely be a lot coming out in the next few weeks.
0: For listeners that might be unfamiliar with you, like, how would you characterize your your focus and your expertise in terms of your, your commentary and analysis?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I'm just, uh, I'm, a, I'm a socialist, and my primary goal is to push for, you know, socialist politics and working class politics. I'm um, from the South, uh, Texas, and also spent a good amount of my life in South Carolina as well. Uh, so I try to bring that perspective and, and those struggles um, into the conversation as much as I can. And, you know, I mean, other things that I spent a good amount of time, especially with the work on the Michael Brooks Show, trying to cover, uh, you know, international working class movements along with economics, uh, because, you know, these are two really important subjects that affect all of our lives. And sometimes uh, lefties are a little bit, I mean, not so much with uh, international politics, um, but especially with economics are a little bit, uh, you know, worry about uh, diving into those. So I try to you know, do my best to, you know, bring those subjects to people and do it in a kind of clear way.
0: I think you, I think you achieved that. Um, I actually think like People of all political stripes would would take a lot of interest in your work because, in a lot of ways, regardless of um, of the analysis you put on top of something, uh, you're we're dealing with you know history and facts and, and just realities that that aren't discussed uh, widely enough. I think you know in terms of yeah economics, it's the sad science, and you know <laughs> it's it's definitely definitely a sad science, and no one wants to think about it. But that is the world we live in. So it's kind of it's kind of shocking how how easily people just say, well, you know, I'm not interested in economics. I'm not interested in international politics when like that's, that's, you know, the little things make up life and those, those, those little things kind of stitch together to form the world we live in. So to Um, me, it's, it's always been of great interest.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's to our disadvantage um, on the left as well, because, you know, when, when you allow other people to basically claim uh, a field of study, uh, like the kind of, especially in the United States, like the right-wing has been able to do with economics. You know, their are whole lines that, you know, they're just rational thinkers. They're not thinking with their heart, and it might be hard sometimes to hear what they have to say. Uh, but, you know, their arguments actually aren't that rational. They're very much based on a kind of fantastical view of capitalism, one that, uh, you know, completely ignores production, <laughs> which is the only way that the system works in the first place. And, you know, we need to, you know, people on the left need to be prepared to, you know, push back against those kind of ideas and not sit here and be sort of, one, intimidated uh, by kind of like right-wing economics, um, and two, you know, being able to put forward a counter-narrative, because there is that kind of inclination I think a lot of people get sometimes that can make the right-wing attractive, that, well, I want to figure out the world, and I want to figure out how, like, the economy works, and if the only people who are there giving them information or perspective are, you know, right-wingers who believe everything is all fine and dandy with capitalism... Uh, you know, it puts us at a at a huge disadvantage and gives them, you know, uh, a great opportunity to basically be able to pull people in because they're not hearing anything else.
0: It's interesting because I f- I feel like there is actually a lot more um, interchange, but it, but because a lot of uh, like say uh, Marxian or or even like Keynesian analysis has to be kind of suppressed. Like it, it, it influences a lot of mainstream thinking, I think kind of surreptitiously, like you'll read the Financial Times and you'll think to yourself, this sounds like more left wing than than anything else I would read, but it's because they, they're dealing with economic realities on the ground, which don't lend themselves necessarily to like that much interpretation, you know, you kind of have to just look at them and say, this is the way, you know, uh, Southeast Asian economies are capital are now capital intensive as opposed to labor intensive. Mm-hmm. And and you would read something like that and, and it sounds very but, but it's interesting because you know left-wing people won't read the
1: Financial Times,
0: you know, even though mm-hmm. maybe they should.
1: No, I mean absolutely, you know, so it's a huge advantage. I mean, um a different publication and I would probably categorize it in a different way. Um, but you know, <laughs> Lenin always used to cite the the economist as, you know, a great asset to the Bolshevik a revolution economist revolution. Everywhere because the Central Committee of the Capitalist World uh, prints their meeting notes. <laughs> right. You know, basically, that you had this publication. And I think The Economist actually doesn't represent that um, as much anymore. I think The Financial Times probably uh, represents more the interests of the financial class, the international financial class at oh, large. Oh, of course. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but back then, it, The Economist as a publication definitely was representing those interests. And exactly, it's like The Financial Times can be very interesting. Um, to, you know, to see what the people, the real, um, the people who control significant amounts of capital are thinking about the world. And like a lot of it is like, you know, a lot of it is like pretty um, clear analysis because you don't get as much like you don't get as much like kind of liberal analysis, which is trying to create some like grand narrative of history. You know, they're really just looking at it from a kind of dollars and cents perspective, which I think lends it and is why it can come off as. You know, a little bit more Marxian or Marxist uh, from time to time, not in its uh, goals, obviously, but in its kind of understanding of the relationships between labor and capital and things like that. Um, yeah. But also, <laughs> um, you know, you can just read some absolutely psychotic stuff. Sure. Uh, like yeah. I was reading of you, know, and, you know, the op-ed, the op-ed page, I think, is is For the most part of the Financial Times, it's just this complete psychotic uh, nonsense talking. I was reading a piece the other day, you know, arguing against providing people with stimulus (laughs) during the COVID lockdown. And you just realize that this is not even good politics or strategy from a capitalist perspective. So there's plenty of loonies in there, too. Oh,
0: for sure. Well, I mean, what you're telling me, there's there's psychosis and and craziness in a, in, a, in a financial world driven by. I mean, like, let's face it. I watched Wolf of Wall Street. Like, we know mm-hmm. what these people do in their spare time. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, someday we'll be in the investor class, though, and our politics completely change. I'm sure. No, I'm just joking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want as a as kind of in terms of kind of starting our collective kind of education down this path. I had some I had some questions I wanted to uh to bring up just to kind of because ultimately I want to try and goad you into coming on and becoming a weekly contributor and giving you a cut of the, of the 20 cents I make from this podcast, of course. Um, because I do think, I do think there's so much to go into here. You know, I I, want to look at a lot of geopolitical kind of, uh, big sky questions and then maybe even get into like different regions and whatnot, because, you know, I don't, I don't think people are paying enough attention and I don't think even I personally am paying enough attention to the idiosyncrasies and the nuances of like how the world is actually functioning right now. Mm And I mentioned, you know, ever since I was a kid, I was interested in history, interested in politics yet somehow for some reason there's like this um, at the center of our political world. I feel like there's this kind of black hole, that people that people just don't look at. They just avert their eyes to something else. Some for some mm-hmm. reason, it's like it's like a Star Trek episode or a Black Mirror episode where there's some something that that's there that everyone can't see somehow. It's uh it's very strange to me because we do frame kind of geopolitics in terms of you know okay well like America is the the world's lone superpower or hyperpower whatever we want to frame it hegemon and you know they have their allies usually termed the international community but really international community means america and its allies and then obviously we've got there's those nice rivals that we can see depicted in in poorly written and enacted hollywood films such as uh, russia or china it's funny how much you're, you're seeing russia come back in in these action movies too it's like it's like i wonder if i wonder if Hollywood thinks that viewers just just like don't know that the Cold War ended in like
1: 1989. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, but but if we if we kind of if we kind of move beyond that and say okay, well what who's actually running things? What are where where does where does power lie or rest in the world world? What what are what are the non kind of state actors that you that you think people should be most aware of in terms of the kind of the, the calculation of this?
1: I mean, you know, the obvious answer would be that let me frame this in the right way. Uh, there has been a, a lot of ink spills in the past. I think this is something people should have been writing about a while ago, but there has been a realization that our economic system in the United States, and I would imagine similar you know, in Canada – you know, people are feeling the same way, It is no longer working for the kind of middle class or, like, the kind of, of the idea that, you know, you can have a kind of blue-collar job and have a car and a house and, you know, have some security go on vacation once a year. A lot of people are seeing that disappear. Um, and the narratives that uh, people have have put forward to answer that are fairly inadequate, the first of which is that everything has been outsourced. And yes, jobs have moved from the United States and, and Canada and all these other places that you know really benefited you know, from this wave of productivity in the 1950s. Right? And it's true that like sweatshop labor um, is, you know, can be very profitable for, for corporations like Nike and all of those places. Don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But the level of profit that the, that the people at the top of this global economic system can extract from workers – has been dwindling for a very long time, and that's been a very interesting um, reality when you look at China, uh, for example, because there is such a story about you know China is this you know productive superpower, um, and you know is you know the you know the United States you, you know the joke is like everything is made in China now, including American flags, um, and again that is that is true, but the amount of profit that capitals can extract um, from that process is you know becoming less and less, and it's only because of the fact that China has such an incredible, you know, state investment um, program, honestly, that has been able to maintain, uh, you know, the system of like, uh, you know, of hyper productivity, but now they're shifting. Now you're actually seeing deindustrialization industrialization um, around China. So what you're seeing with all of these countries, United States, China, hell, Russia, that's a whole other monster to get into, you know, the kind of economic system there. Um, you know what you're seeing is all of these countries are trying to figure out how they can handle themselves and find a way to you know continue economic growth in their country while productivity uh, is becoming is, it, while like the profit that you can get from basically industrial production is declining. Um, and what that means actually is that for the you know these countries, the United States um, and China, it's a fight to cannibalize already existing markets rather than trying to create new ones because the world is actually very hypersaturated um, when it comes to like most consumer goods and products. So we're seeing this really interesting, um, you know, conflict between you know the United States and China that is bubbling up. But I'm telling you, underneath it all is one, you know, imperial ambition from the United States, um, you know, and a refusal to accept the fact that China is a 100% a rising power. Um, and you know is going to just continue to grow exponentially um but you know the underlying reality of it too is that there is this kind of realization that what is we're going to start to be entering a period of, of scarcity and having that kind of financial control being able to dominate other countries markets is going to be um, critical for you know both the united states and, and china's kind of you know large-scale hegemonic ambitions
0: I read some interesting stuff recently about how, how critical, like I, I always, I always kind of knew it intuitively in the back of my mind, but, uh, but I didn't realize to what extent, um, China was critical to pulling the global economy out of both the yeah. 2007 crisis and, and also probably this one as well, to a certain extent, but at the same time, like you're saying, because, because the, the markets and the economies are developed to the point where they need to be, it's really just a rush now to cannibalize already existing stuff, yeah. um, uh, like it's it's like we've 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 used it's like if if the global economy is super mario brothers we had Mm -hmm. two extra lives and they (laughs) were china spending the way spending their way out of the recession like crazy producing incredible amounts of concrete and all kinds of crazy stuff um but that's that's over now so so we don't we we basically don't have china to spend its way out of the next global recession right
1: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the case. I mean, the thing is, like, the Chinese model really does, it's less of an imperative for them, actually, than it is for the United States uh, to deal with the kind of lack of uh, profitability from, you know, from industrial production. Uh, Just because the United States is such an, you know, there's, we can have a whole conversation, I think, it wouldn't be too Worthwhile to get too deep into it right now about what kind of economy has. Uh, China, mm. sorry, what kind of economy China has? Sure. Um, yeah. But I'll tell you one thing. It's not. It's not. It's not capitalist. And I, I think it's. I think it's an incorrect way that some people try to to paint it um, as. Oh, as yeah, capitalist. yeah. No, I mean, it's
0: it's kind of a form of like state capitalism. I mean, like the, like China themselves don't even like they have they have a lot more nuance in how they think of their own economy. I mean, I know their their financial market is obviously. Not not tied into the, the the global financial system, which I think is incredibly smart on their part, and probably the it's reason like why on. they're able to bounce back. Yeah,
1: you know, yeah, exactly. it's state owned, so it means it just operates under a completely different um, intention, and uh, it, which means that I mean, because you know, that's a whole other conversation to have too. Yeah. is like the role of financial oh. capital. Um, What that does to productivity, again, I mean, this is what you saw in the decline um, in the United States in particular, and also the UK is a really great example of this. And Grace Blakely has a great book uh, on this called Stolen, where she really goes through the history of how financial capital came to dominate industrial capital. Um, but what happens with financial capital is, I mean, and I can't remember exactly where it was. I think it was a letter. Engels has a great line about, you know, financial capitalism um, is just like the pure, like, exuberance of the bourgeoisie, you know, all, always sprinting towards this hopeful future where they could completely escape production uh, and just make money off of money, right? And that's that's what financial capital's is. Um, that's what financial sure. capital tries to do in, in a yeah. lot of ways, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it is actually tied to production. And as far away as financial capital can get to, like the actual existing, you know, economy, and and what I mean by that is like goods and services that are created by people, things that are consumed by people, into speculative, um, you know, activities. Because you know what finance capital basically is is it's reaching into the future, reaching into future profits, and bringing those into the present. That's the co- the present. Um, So there is a day when finance, like there needs to be the the production, there needs to be the capital, there needs to be the return. um, And what financial capital has become really good at doing in the United States and in the UK is pushing that down the line. Um, But then, of course, sooner or later, those those responsibilities come back. And that was what happened in the 2008 financial crisis. I'm saying this because, you know, sorry not to go on a tangent, but like I I was bringing that up to compare that to China, where they don't have that kind of pressure. Um, because they're not trying to pay off, uh, you know, this whole class of, of financiers, right? They operate on a kind of capitalist logic in the sense of like investment um, and interest rates and things like that. But because the, the governing institutions there have a different goal, which is basically, you know, development, um, you know, they have a different relationship with with uh, you know with industry um, and, and with businesses there. So well, they, like don't, these- they don't
0: live under the threat of capital flight. Right, which would yeah. be the main the main kind of you know thing that, that would be used to coerce them.
1: I think that's a, that's a that's a, a great point. Yeah, you know, so you know that's the kind of you know situation right now that we're going to be seeing between you know China and the United States. And then obviously, you know, just the fact that China is just going to want to assert itself um, in you know Southeast Asia, for example. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, against the United States, and you know, we're gonna. I mean, there's definitely are going to be you know significant uh, conflicts. I I hope you know, obviously, that it doesn't become anything hot. Con- I don't think that anybody actually, except for the most psychotic you know lunatics, people like Steve Bannon uh, or or John Bolton, um, actually intend or have any desire for any kind of actual military confrontation. But there's going to be a, a very serious political political one, and. I think the thing that's going to be really interesting for the United States going forward um, is when <laughs> you, know, you have this whole generation of people who just thought you could walk into an interview as a representative of the United States government and everyone's going to listen to you and do what you say. And I think as we start to see that power dwindle, and we've seen a lot of that um, under the Trump administration, for example, we'll see what like when Joe Biden comes into power. Um <laughs> I don't, I, I think that, you know, they're, they're going to have this expectation that they're going to be leading, uh, you know, international organizations or inter, international initiatives. And I think that uh, that kind of luster is starting to wane for a lot of uh, other countries. And the United States is not going the United States will still have tremendous influence, don't get me wrong, but they're not going to be able to dictate terms as they have. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's very bizarre to me because I, I, I'm in like my, my late 30s. I think the Cold War ended when I was in like the, about the third grade, something like that. Um, and it's very strange to me to realize that for like the next, you know, if I, if I live another 40 years, I'm going to be seeing the a long folding out process of, like you said, a political confrontation between these two powers, but it, it, it's, it's in such a more integrated world that I wonder, I I just, it it boggles my mind to think what shape that's going to take when, when like, you know, Russia or the the Soviet Union and the United States were not you know, huge trading partners necessarily Mm -hmm. during the Cold War, you know, their their economies were not really just completely plugged into each other. They kind of had their own separate kind of economic spheres of influence. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, I don't, I don't see how, and and even just in terms of communications, you know, like everyone in the world has Chinese friends now. Everyone in the world can talk to anyone from around the world right now. There's Mm -hmm. not really much appetite in people's minds, I think, to, (laughs) you know have an actual serious confrontation with this large group of people that really don't seem far away anymore they seem like they're next door
1: so. well and i think that's important uh, you know for for socialists you know like we need to have you know solidarity with people across across the world i just wanted to bring this up cuz i don't know did you see the movie arrival uh, that came out maybe 3 4 years ago
0: uh, with no Amy but Adams? i i i know about- but I haven't it, seen it.
1: It was a hilarious movie. Um, I won't spoil anything for people um, other than the fact, you know, essentially, this is a you know, pure fantasy that like aliens are, arrive on planet Earth and they have to have, you know, an expert linguist trying to figure out how to communicate with them. Um, <laughs> well, in the movie, uh, the bad guys are uh, China and Russia. Uh, because while these aliens are landing on Earth, you know, and the United States is diligently just trying to understand and respect this different alien culture, all China and Russia want to do is blow up every alien craft, uh, <laughs> you know, around the world. And it's only, uh, and I mean, it's like hyper Cold War kind of of movie in that sense. You know, the, the Russians are just unfeeling, uh, and as with the Chinese, it's interesting how those stereotypes, you know, play out in the same way. Um, you know, but, you know, but the Russians are like brash or whatever. And again, it's like only the calm, cool, intelligent Americans who have like the interests of the world in general, um, at heart, um, who are the heroes. Because in the movie, the Chinese are basically trying to get the advanced weaponry, um, from the, uh, you know, from the aliens to, you know, win a, a potential war in the future. And anyways, it was just a funny movie for me to watch, to, to sit there and and i was sitting there and thinking to myself like this is exactly what it would be like to watch like an action movie in the 80s right yeah it's weird <laughs> uh, the propaganda
0: like... the propaganda is really stuck it's it's like grinding its gears because like people are too sophisticated now like i think i think in a weird way people think you know if we're not if you're not hypercritical of china it means you think china is you know, somehow, like the good guy in America is the bad guy. It's like, no, yeah. we are just we're just putting the U.S. in the same bad guy club as everyone else. Like all these <laughs> giant states do ba- have done bad things, or or will do bad things, or you know, it's there's 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 no clean hands. They're all in the same plague mm-hmm. pit. But it's it's just like we, the the idea that people would be susceptible. To this like 80s style and in some cases it's more like 50s or 60s level yeah. quality in it's propaganda and depiction of others it's just like don't these people have, have these people heard of like Instagram it's like we're all <laughs> we're all kind of one group now ultimately and I just I don't I don't see how you could ever get public support for like a major a major war out, outside of some kind of some something crazy going down
1: but, yeah <laughs> I agree
0: yeah um, I wanted to ask you as well so like when you, when you when you look at kind of the 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 system as it is right now i mean obviously it's pretty easy to get um uh feel feel desperate and feel powerless and whatnot given like the the kind of uh challenges lying ahead in terms of just like people actually having a positive political engagement with the world but like what do you think people should be doing uh now that we have uh something we we have all all this free time where we're not spending uh Thinking about this orange monster that was occupying the White House.
1: I mean, we got to do a lot of work. I mean, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next year, um, because I think five years ago we didn't have any form of you know serious socialist movement in the United States. No serious form of you know serious socialist media um, in this in the United States, and we've seen that explode, um, you know, to an incredible incredible degree. almost unimaginable from 2015 to 2020, how much has been laid out. Um, and hell, you know, two in the United States, two, you know, Hail Mary, yes, but, you know, two serious bids at uh, at the White House for democratic socialist president. So like, there's a lot to be excited about, but that doesn't mean that we fall into an uncritical mindset. Uh, What's going to be really difficult, I think, over this next year is making sure that we don't lose people who think that, yeah, the orange man bad is gone and now it's like a return to decency in this country. And I'm seeing that from uh, people I know, you know, family and friends who aren't particularly political, you know, just like, OK, now it's time to go back uh, to my daily life. You know, you're seeing Joe Biden break, <laughs> like, you know, fossil fuel lobbyists into like important climate change uh, positions. So you know it definitely is not a time that we can we can back off I think uh, you know but we're seeing really exciting things uh, you know in Alabama at an Amazon warehouse, uh, there's going to be a unionization vote uh, coming up very soon, which is huge. Uh, you know being able to build union power um, in Amazon is going to be critical, I think uh, going forward just since that corporation has taken so much control over you know our distribution. Uh, networks in, in the United States and, and globally as well. So that's awesome. You know, my hometown of Austin, Texas, they were able to defund the police, you know, um, you know, a lot of a lot of really incredible stuff is going on, but we have to do the real serious what, work. Uh,
0: can you can you just yeah. comment on like in terms of like, what did the how did they change the funding to the police? Like, uh, did it go towards community policing or?
1: Yeah, like, was, um, it, was it
0: more about removing like the the budget for like tanks and other military hardware? Yeah,
1: essentially that, and then they also stopped um, training new police officers. And it's not a full defund, but it's a massive one, you know, something around like 150 million dollars. And again, these aren't perfect victories, and I know the people who are working on this are, you know, working on expanding it. Um, but it's just like this stuff is happening, you know, in Texas and in Alabama, um, you know, and it can happen anywhere. So it's like I think it's really important to be you know exceptionally bold right uh because you know there's a big fight ahead of us and i think any kind of strategy that (laughs) you know i don't know this might be my my personal something that just gets underneath my skin but this kind of sometimes i talk to socials especially in new york who have this idea that like oh basically what we need to do is we just need to build like progressive power in new york and california um and you know forget about the south forget about the rest of the country because it's just be too hard i just think that's absurd um oh yeah that's crazy it's it's crazy, you know, because, well, basically their position is that, like, it's like a resources perspective. So, like, should the DSA be, like, investing heavily in Alabama and Texas? I think, yes. But, you know, that's sort of where their argument is coming from. Um, but it's, uh, you know, so anyways, that's going on. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, the only times things have ever changed in this country is when you started to get, build, you know, massive working class um, institutions and, and organizations, Right. And, yeah. and and I mean that quite literally. Like the, the only time we've ever had like a real viable uh, third-party system in the United States uh, was when we had the, the People's Party, which came out of the populist movement. And that movement started with poor white and black farmers being taken advantage of. This is in the late 1800s. Being taken advantage of by the merchant class. Um, basically, we had a really uh, bizarre, um, not even bizarre for the time, but a, a monetary system that just was not up to the task of, Operating um, on the scale that the United States needed and what was happening is that merchants especially people who owned debt Were benefiting immensely off of the indebted classes and if you know anything about farming uh, You know that to farm you have to go to debt at the beginning of the season and then you pay it back at the end of the sure. At the end of the season and basically people were not able to um, Get out of debt because by the time it was time to pay their debts uh, you know, their debt in, in real terms of, of value to them had increased like two, threefold, right? So people were just constantly in debt to this merchant class. And basically what people got together um, and and uh, started demanding uh, it, um, was that the United States moved to either a fiat currency, you know, which we have now, Um, Or a silver backed currency instead of a gold backed currency. Anyways, you know, and out of that demand, you started having all these other demands. Like, oh, you know, we need to have like better public education in this country. We need to do all these other kind of things. That came from people getting together and talking about their problems and coming up with solutions. And that's the kind of thing that we need to start doing Um, in this country. You know, some people think that we're just going to get like this, uh, like a perfect silver bullet or like the best way to frame. Left-wing politics in this country. And it's like I'm telling you, like there's no brand that's going to do this for us. It's only going to come when we start getting people together and talking about, uh, you know, they're of coming up with new strategies uh, that that really speak to, you know, the current state of things.
0: For sure, I couldn't agree more. I think the biggest lesson I've taken out of the last few years is that is that a a, a, a party politics or a a political movement without a, an actual social movement or a, or a mass movement behind it. Is is really not going to work anymore, and and really not going to be a thing. I think soon, like we kind of have the wizened uh, zombie of like neoliberalism that's still still marching along on its last legs. But I think ultimately, I mean, and even if you look at if you look at and t- there's, there's so many things I want to hit on actually. Like if you look at the regional question, um, it's interesting because I I I I read this article that said that you know. Kind of paradoxically, the way a lot of Republicans have gerrymandered districts in in different states, the way the way you gerrymander to favor Republicans is you make a hyper concentrated democratic uh, uh, area and then you'd have to carve out a bunch of weird shaped Republican areas that that only have a slim majority. So what they've actually but so but if you actually did get some movements going on in some of these gerrymandered districts because they only have that slim Republican majority, it wouldn't it wouldn't be that difficult to flip some of them. It actually makes it less difficult. So, and also I think, you know, um, a movement that includes people from all over the country um, and includes rural people is, is, is the way it is, is the, like, that's, that's a movement that has a future. I think, I don't think, I don't think the middle of the country is interested in being talked down to from people on the coast anymore. I did want to say with the whole question of like police funding, I'm, as someone who's just interested in messaging, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, t- I totally don't don't buy the lie that like um, that that people freaked out about the defund the police thing and that's why the election was so close and all, all the other ways that that people were trying to scapegoat. But like I think of us, uh, for example in Vancouver, there's there's a program they've had a long time where they would because they were having and we still have a lot of overdose deaths. There's still actually a, a, an ongoing public health crisis besides coronavirus going on here with overdose deaths, but um, maybe about 10, 15 years ago, they started these things, and at the time, they called them harm reduction sites, and it's it's where people could take the drug uh, medically supervised to to make sure that if they overdose, basically to make sure they don't die of an overdose. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think with I think with these controversial things, these things that are could be shocking to people if they've never thought about it or, or heard about it before. Um, these kinds of programs that are trying to deal with a really serious need, but in a way that that maybe some people might have questions about to start. I think I think messaging and wording is really important. And they oh, ended up course. eventually changing it to, I think they're now called overdose prevention sites. Mm-hmm. So it's basically like it's, 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 I think it's way better branding for lack of a better term or messaging. And I'm wondering like what, because the problem is you have defund the police, which is, you know, the kind of radical call to action, you know, mm-hmm. due to obviously a pretty urgent need that people feel pretty, strongly about given, you know, the things that we've seen, um, especially the last, this last year. But I mean, it's been going on obviously for an extremely long time too. Um, and then you have criminal justice reform that, you know, the establishment will, will trot out, but that's, that's kind of a, a husk that, that no, that means nothing to anybody anymore. Cause it's just couched in the language of, of, uh, it's like kind of technocratic language or whatever is that we Mm would, I would love, I would love to see if there was some kind of needle we could thread to say, okay, we want community-based policing or something to say, you know, we want, we want police that are, that are here to protect people in the community, uh, and not, you know, do violence to them basically. But it's, it's a hard thing to kind of think of the
1: right phrase. I I hear you. I mean, like, you know, there's definitely a lot of work to be done and, Within strategy, I mean, you know, basically what happened in Austin is that you had trust. And and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about like the populist movement. Is like we can't rebuild a coalition over every issue. Like, you know, I mean, obviously that's like what we've been doing. um, But it doesn't work because you have to spend so much of your time constantly basically creating like a voting block um, for all of these issues. It's much better to have, you know, kind of community organizations, trusted members of the community, doing that general political education. And that's why I think that what happened in Austin ended up being a success was that you had a lot of anti-gentrification um, and anti- people who were advocating for you know homeless people, people who were advocating for immigrant labor, things like that. All those organizations that were very trusted in communities were basically able to create a coalition along with members of the DSA to push forward the, the politics. But you're hundred percent right. The, what was very helpful, um, and, and if anyone is actually interested in spending uh, you know, a little bit of time mm-hmm. on this, you can check out on uh, my YouTube channel, uh, The Michael Brooks Show. I did an interview with Seneca Savoy. I think we called something like Defund the Police in Texas, where he, who is one of the you know, organizers and strategists of the movement, actually just takes through like, the organizing strategy you know, for how they're able to achieve it. And you know, fundamental to that was making the point to people that there are a lot of social services that are needed in the city that have not been met um, and that the police are not an adequate um, solution to those problems. You know, I'm talking about things like mental health services. I mean, how many many
0: people, how many people die because the only way the only only person available to intervene when someone is having a mental health crisis is, is a police officer, you know, and how much, how much would police officers love to not have that be part of their job to the extent that it is right now, you
1: know? Yeah, or, or, you know, traffic violations, you know, there was a, you know, p- there's a few police murders going into, you know, the, this big movement, um, you know, in Austin, you know, that really, you know, got people rightfully, um, you know, up, up and, and rounding, ready to, to make a change because you know, these were people being murdered for, you know, just minor kind of driving infractions. Um, and then having the you know the, the situation just be immediately escalated by having a bunch of armed people, high-strung armed people, pointing weapons at folks, right? Like people understand, actually, and I think um, it's actually much more universal than some activists try to make it out to be, too. I think this is also something that's going to be really important to start doing. It's actually a very universal experience to face police harassment. Or, you know, to just be in a situation where you are just having a really negative interaction with a police officer. And most people actually intuitively understand that or have have experienced it themselves. So when, you know, this kind of idea that like there's this group of people in this country who loves all police officers no matter what. um, Actually, a lot more people are reachable because most people have seen a police officer abuse their powers in front of them. You know, different degrees and scales, of course. But, you know, we've all been, you know, a lot of people have been in a situation where they've been... (laughs) In a kind of like high tension moment with a police of officer who's definitely, you know, just high on their on their social power. Right. So that was a really successful way to also motivate people, too.
0: Well, the problem is, is ultimately, you know, and this is why I think things like, you know, requiring a, a college degree for police officers is huge, because there's just a personality type that will go into a certain type of job because it gives them ample opportunity to power trip. And I think socially we haven't we haven't grappled with that problem in nearly enough areas including policing but you know it applies the same the same thing applies to like borders border guards or even people like landlords or business owners you know some people seek out because i and ultimately i think it has to do with their own sense of powerlessness in their own life but they they seek out those chances to basically pull rank on somebody and they think okay well this is this is a good this is a good job for me to go pull rank on people
1: exactly
0: and man it's gross it is fucking gross to see but it happens, yeah. I think that's really that's really true. Like uh, speaking to it as like more of a universal, because the thing is like when when it's when you racialize it too much, it, it probably gets pulled into the kind of um, kind of like socio cultural gravity of you know, the racial struggles uh, and, and and movements for racial justice themselves, which are very politicized and very left right, and people will think, okay, well, you know. But you're right. It is it is something that I think is, is quite universal. And I think that's, we, we ought to find new language. Cause I think defund the police, my problem with defund the police is uh, as a motto is I think, I think we're already so close to the precipice of like a Mad Max style apocalypse. Mm. That people, people are just thinking to themselves, Oh, okay. Defund the police. It means I'm going to be living in that shitty movie, the purge or whatever <laughs> pretty soon, you know? <laughs> and, and to be honest, they have reason to be worried that that's, that that's around the corner. So I don't, I don't want them uh, to think that, you know, when they dial 911, no one's going to
1: come, but, Um, I agree. I mean, it's it's definitely, it's definitely, I mean, this is what people have been getting so worked up about this for this past, like, and in the past few months, it's just been like endless debates on the question of like the phrase defund the police. And I, I, I I don't say that to trivialize it. It's an important debate to have. Um, you know, it's just like, I think it's important for people who are actually doing the movement work. And I think people who are actually good at that, that work understand it's not worth it to be attached, um, to any kind of, you know, uh, costumes or, or clothing or you know particular slogans right you would want to get people to you know to participate in your movements you know defund the police works with some with some people because it opens up a conversation because then you can have mm-hmm. the conversation about the benefits um, but look i mean there's a lot yeah. of propaganda out there in this country you know, like the idea even you know what you were saying is like you know all these people think that you know they need the police to protect them you know most of them haven't had the experience of actually having to call the police in an emergency situation there's a whole you know kind of hollywood fantasy you know, then the mm. robber gets into your house, <laughs> like, you know, you get, you get the phone call out in time and then in 10 minutes, you know, five police officers come and save the day. Um, you know, you're lucky sure. most places to get somebody to show up in the morning.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting how much those fantasies can really have uh, like social change. Like I know some people talk about how all those kind of religious themed horror movies in the 70s really did lead to kind of a religious revival of the United States mm. in kind that's of a frightening way. Yeah, like, and that's when you started to see, you know, religious communities propping up in like colorado springs and stuff and it was basically when i thought about it it was like because I, I grew up a little religious too and it was like those movies were always the scariest to me and all my friends and family mm-hmm. because they had that religious undertone and mm-hmm. i think if you're looking at you the culture of like the late 60s you know it, it didn't really seem like the most like religiosity was at the forefront but certainly like a little later i think there there definitely was. you know when you look at reagan and stuff like that there were I don't know. I think I think sometimes we, we underestimate the effect that that level of kind of um, cultural uh, propaganda or I don't know, just cultural influence can affect us. But.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I don't want to get too hung up on the on the one thing. Um, we're at 40 minutes here. I know you said you had about 45. Have I uh, have I wet your appetite for more discussion? Or are you looking to run to the hills? We can start the <laughs> wind down procedure if you want.
1: Yeah, I, I have a couple more minutes. I have to head out pretty soon, though.
0: Okay, I'll do some
1: stuff with left
0: recommend in a minute. Um, cool. Yeah, I wanted to ask you then just like what um what kind of stories are you following that uh, that are are kind of most piquing your interest now. I know one thing you've commented on that I really think you're the only person I've heard comment on it, even though it's a pretty incredible story, or all the um shipping people in the shipping industry that are Mm, like trapped at sea right now after how how many however many months it's been. I mean, can you can you give an update on that? It's pretty it's pretty shocking stuff.
1: I mean, for the most part, it's it's the same situation. I mean, the for people who aren't familiar, basically, since COVID has started, uh, you know, sailors across the the globe have been blocked um, and are not able to you know get off their ships. Um, you know, and countries are doing this because they have pretty you know strict COVID restrictions, uh, which is definitely understandable. But what this has created is a crisis for the people who are responsible. Um, who are responsible for providing most of the goods that, you know, you use in a day-to-day basis. I mean, our, our entire economy is global and it goes through the sea. Um, so, you know, something around like a million sailors have basically been stranded at sea. Uh,
0: a million?
1: Yeah, all, all throughout the, the globe.
0: So, like, what uh, happens when you're trapped on a boat for that long?
1: Well, long I mean, day? there are laws, uh, you know, international um, maritime laws that, you know, prevent sailors from having to be on duty for that long, because it's just, it's not safe. And, um, you know, for people who might be familiar with, you know, what it takes to to sail a a rig, like, you know, we use for shipping in this country, and globally, sorry, um, the margin of error is very small, and you're just doing kind of, you know, small tasks throughout the day, but if you're not paying attention, they can be disastrous, you know, you can do something, uh, you know, accidentally throw somebody off board, you know, by using, you know, by accidentally, you know, hitting, you know, the wrong lever, hitting a crane or something like that. Um, you know, so like the, the, the stakes are very high, and we've seen some really scary incidents um, in like the Indian Ocean, for example, where, you know, ships have almost, you know, had accidents or hit reefs or, or things like that, because there's just massive fatigue. Now, I don't have uh, an update on, you know, where it's at numbers-wise, you know, from, you know, July. Um, But basically we haven't seen that kind of international move that would be needed to get all these people off the water. We're starting to see basically piecemeal, country by country are coming up with solutions, but it still has been incredibly difficult because, you know, since international flights um, aren't as easy and, you know, aren't as running as much as they used to, and then you have all these countries that just don't want to have foreign nationals um, show up on their on their border, um, you know, and go to their airport. You know, we're starting to see basically like country to country agreements, um, which again is great, you know, for the people who are able to get home, but it means that there's a lot of people who are sort of left out. Um, and you know, you're also seeing people who are unable, who you know, when they go into a port are, are, are unable to just get off the boat, um, you know, which is just good for your your health and, and mental state, obviously, but it also means Getting things like shampoo and, you know, food and things like that have been, you know, incredibly difficult for people.
0: Well, I imagine like, you know, it's just you at a certain point you probably are, you know, you're not you're not living like a human being. You know, it's like being being trapped in any one environment for too long. is, is Yeah, there is a boat. I, can remember. Like
1: I, can't remember where was, I can't remember where it was um, stuck out, but it was stuck at a port and every sailor had just shaved their head because they couldn't, wa- you know, they couldn't wash their hair. So it's just the most hygienic thing to do is everyone just cut off all their hair, which, you know, makes for a very striking image and a true example of just how yeah, how dehumanizing that kind of experience can feel for people.
0: Yeah, no question. Um I wonder I mean I would hope that like there's some kind of uh international coordinated action so that the next time a pandemic such as this happens, which hopefully there isn't the next time, but I have a feeling it might it might be something we see in the future. I mean there sh- there has to be some kind of like, if we're going to have this kind of globalized economy, I mean, we have to we have to do things like protect these kinds of critical workers better um, in the future. So really hope we can see that. Um, OK, well, I know you got to go, David. So nice to meet you. Uh, I really appreciate yeah. you taking the time to come on and talk. I, I think we could probably talk for like another another hour or two at least here. <laughs> yeah, so sure. um so I'll try and organize my uh, my rhizomic thoughts and maybe try and go to into coming on again soon. Um. But uh, yeah, where can people uh, where can people follow you?
1: Yeah, um, you can find me at, at Twitter at David Griscom. Uh, you can check out my new project, Left Reckoning. Uh, we're at Left Reckoning on Twitter and Instagram, and Patreon.com/LeftReckoning. Uh, we're we're going to be doing shows on Twitch and YouTube, so check those out too.
0: Awesome, I'll be following closely. Awesome. Man. Um, all right, well, you have uh, enjoy the rest of your day, and I'll catch up with you very soon. You too, man.
1: Take care.